Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence. And this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. Kimberly Best is my guest for today. And I want you to think about this. Have you ever had an opportunity to be in conflict with someone or just want to have a really, really difficult conversation? You know, if you're a caregiver, how do you talk to your parents about, you know, it's time for you to stop driving or you need to move on to the next level or with your boss? Um, your boss has done something or said something and he or she, it's getting thicker and thicker and thicker in the room. And the elephant that is farting all over the place is just choking you up and you really want to say something. Or, you know what, maybe it's you're working for um, public affairs or public office and it's the police department and you really need to figure out how to mediate and resolve in an equitable and fair way so that people feel like they've been heard, seen, and listened. That a safe place happens um, and that it's safe for you to say and do and lean into the conflict. Well, guess what? She loves this work. Kimberly Best loves this work. She is the third party that is in the room that helps you figure out <laughs> how to have the best conversation that you can. And as you know, one of my echoes is change um, results one conversation at a time. And so I am so happy that you are going to get to know my friend, Kimberly Bass. Hi, Kimberly. I am very grateful to be here, Denise. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, yes. Well, just as a background on Kimberly, um, she's been doing this a long time. We don't ever talk about age. Just know that she's a professional. <laughs> she's been doing this a while. And she's really passionate about helping others resolve conflict in a productive, non-litigious, let's get the courts out of it, way using mediation, facilitation, and collaborative problem solving in order to find the optimal solution for everybody, we want win, win, win. Not just win, win, but win, win, win. Everybody involved is feeling like they are whole, happy, and healthy. She believes that having challenging conversations in a safe, non-blaming space can promote better problem solving and increase emotional connections. One of her side things was is that she authored a book called How to Live Forever, a guide to writing the final chapter of your life story. She's a speaker and trainer on the topic of conflict management, dispute resolution, life transition, and how to make difficult decisions, including end-of-life issues. And her other life, because, you know, we have our 
work life. We have our fun life, which was writing the book and talking to people about that. And then we have the joy of our life. She is a proud mother of five grown, grown children and a grandmother of four lively little ones. Hey, Kimberly, how's it going? <laughs> well, good. I mean, I think you did a great description on mediation where, you know, my work is done. Here. <laughs> um, yeah. I, d- I did want to say when you said I love I love my job, I do love my job. My, my brother, who is an educator, uh, told me a week ago, he's like, you, you need to make a coffee mug that says mediators thrive on conflict. And I've weighed that, putting that out there in public. I mean, that's the kind of thing that might backfire. But you also talked about uh, mediation in the police uh, community realm. And what you didn't know is that I'm a senior mediator with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office, and I do police community mediation. And they're, they're transformative, you know, for the community and for the police to have a moment to see each other as humans and learn from each other. And um, the outcomes of those, you know, when the environment's right to have these kind of conversations, you know, can involve apology or a couple of times it's like, let's get together and have margaritas afterwards, which you wouldn't expect, right? And uh, somebody was going to take somebody for ice cream once. And uh, so the process of mediation isn't terribly easy because you're opening your insides, mm-hmm. you know, to a neutral, but the but the outcome is uh, greater than carrying that with you. Mm-hmm. I think so. So what's your favorite quote or saying or a life lesson that you live by? Well, there's a ton of those, but one of my favorite sayings that I keep on my phone is by Rupi Kaur. And I just want to say I was at an eighth grade graduation where these children did a self-portrait and then wrote something that moves them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is so profound. It is what terrifies me most is how we foam at the mouth with envy when others succeed, but sigh in relief when they are failing. Our struggle to celebrate each other is what's proven most difficult in being human. Oh, my God. That is so beautiful. And so I have goosebumps. I know, I know. I've had this for like 10 years on my phone because it just struck me. We we do. We don't want people to do too much better than they are, than we are. And we need yeah. to change that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Can I ask you a question? I just sort yeah. you know, you know, mediation, meditation, when you look at the word, it could be both <laughs> of them. I'm sure you meditate prior to getting into mediation out of this. But a lot of times we toss words around. And we don't really stop to think about what does that word actually entail? What does that word mean? And so I want, you know, if you could step back a little bit and just what is mediation and what involves mediation? Do you always have to have a third party to mediate or can you do it on your own? Um, You're right. I do a meditation before um, every mediation and uh, before every podcast, and it is, you know, a prayer for uh, grace and wisdom. And uh, when I started mediation, I would put in, you know, Google mediation, and Google would always say, you mean meditation. Mm. So it's so new, this idea of mediation. And a lot of people know of it as they know somebody who went through a terrible divorce mediation. Maybe there were attorney mediators that did a version of mediation that's closer to law than to what mediation should be. But you do need a neutral. Mm -hmm. And um, that is somebody who is not for one side more than another. 
Okay. Um, I tell people that I use impartial instead of neutral because neutral sounds like a kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ken Cloak, who is probably the most renowned mediator on the planet, was a teacher of mine, and he uses the term omnipartial, which is what I use as well. Okay. That means I am for both sides. Mm-hmm. And if I'm for you and for you, I want the best for you. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me in a place where um, that neutrality, not being for one over the other, is much easier to hold. And it works well, too. So mediation is confidential. Mm-hmm. And that's important because you can uh, spill your guts. And even if you're considering going to court for an issue, nothing you say in mediation can go to court. So it's a safe space to really dig down underneath the root of the problems. And it's never the problem that shows up. There's always a lot of stuff, <laughs> deeper, right? Um, yes. So yeah, it's voluntary, neutral, confidential. That's probably, oh, not about blame. I think that's important because in resolving conflicts, a lot of people are afraid to come to the table. And I think part of the reason is they're afraid they're the problem or Mm -hmm. going to be told they're the problem. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely not about blame. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody usually at some point sees their own responsibility, which is Mm -hmm. different than blame. It's about designing a better way forward because uh, conflict is a stuck point. And it's a point where we're carrying heaviness in us. And when we find a better way forward, that's a lot lighter. So I guess in my mind, when two parties come, they are, like you said, stuck. Right. And we're stuck in, I don't want to be blamed. I am right. My version of what happened is right. And why did you put me in this situation? Why mm-hmm. am I even here to have to have a conversation? And I could imagine something as heated as mediating the Los Angeles Police Department and the attorney, um, you said attorney general and all of these other people who really have pretty rigorously thought out positions right? that they think are right against right. someone who is a, you know, a public figure, a, a regular human being who is really moving from what's fair, you know, why am I here? And a much more maybe emotional point, not to say both sides aren't emotional, because when we get stuck, we are emotional. I mean, how did you get them to pull down the guard just a little bit to even hear each other? Because I could imagine those first meetings, nobody's really listening. That's true. So if I brought two people together right away, I think it would be, I almost said words I probably shouldn't say, it would be a mess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It would not be pretty. But in setting both people up for success, it is listening to one, hearing the depth of the emotion, putting myself in their shoes and actually validating if I were them, any single one of my clients, I get what it feels like to be where they are. But based on our experience, we tell ourselves a story that's our story. Mm -hmm. That's true on both sides, Mm -hmm. right? And that story is the truth. Mm -hmm. So the thing in mediation uh, is not looking for whose truth is real, because I know that both people's truth is their truth. Mm -hmm. It is being able to hold two truths and then tell it in the form of a story. You know, it's it's about asking questions that are, so tell me how that impacted you. Uh, tell me what outcome you would have liked to have seen from that. What outcome would you like now? And that's part of the problem solving. But the initial conversation gives them an opportunity to unload what 
could be ugly if you just brought them both together. And then have time to talk about, well, how do you want to show up for this? Mm-hmm. What do you think would work? You know, so so the preparation is very, very important. And then everybody kind of knows what they're in for. So there's no surprises. I mean, I'll say, you know, it might get tense in there. What's your plan for when that happens? Uh, because I do allow space for emotion. Some mediators think that there shouldn't be, but a lot of mediators know that emotion and logic is who we are. Mm-hmm. And it takes both of those to make decisions, especially moving forward. I always say I'm very good at my job and, and Denise, I am, and I'm not bragging unless it's my own life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that omni-neutral <laughs> I mean, when we're the ones in conflict, mm-hmm. it can feel life-threatening to us. Our mm-hmm. brains have mechanisms that say, protect yourself, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And it also makes it harder to see the other person's perspective because we're all hunkered down in maybe our rightness, maybe our self-protection, uh, maybe our fear, a combination of all three of those. And that's just part of being human. And then the other part about that is, very few of us have learned how to handle conflict well. Now, I I do much better. Obviously, I feel like I have to walk the walk, but I still get triggered. So my son, who who is now here right now uh, from college, when he was about 16, my youngest one, I was tucking him in one night and I walk into his room and I'm like, I always told him good night. That tucking in stuff is real. Um, so <laughs> I'm like, son, what is this stuff all the the floor. And he's like, what stuff? And I'm like, that, 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 that. He says, I don't see anything. Well, this woman's trigger is somebody, (laughs) somebody telling her something doesn't exist when my two eyes are seeing it. And I know exactly where my trigger comes from. So about the time I wanted to pick up a pillow and put it over his face, which is not a good way of handling conflict. I turned around and walked out of the room, which is also not a good way of handling conflict. I'm walking down the stairs and I hear a voice behind me say, and you call yourself a conflict manager. (laughs) And you know what I love about that? Okay, what was that? Six years ago, five years ago, it was humbling because I remembered then I never forget how hard it is to be rational, to do the right thing, to show up the way we really want to be. Yep. When you're the one in conflict. So yeah. I help people get to that place. Yeah. And it's a good reminder that as skilled as we might be in negotiations and whatever our expertise is, it is way differently when you're the person at the center of the universe on this issue. Mm-hmm. And your emotions, which you said before, are there to protect us. They kick in. And when they kick in to protect us, they are fierce. End of subject, they can be fierce. So it it kind of brings me to, you know, most workplaces don't use mediation as a way to resolve conflict in the workplace itself. And from an HR point of view, an HR person really should be a very skilled mediator. But the truth of the matter is, is that probably 90% plus HR people are really there for the company, which is a, is is not necessarily what we say because we like to say oh we're people people we're here for the employees but the reality is your job is to protect the company from managers who are doing things that will jeopardize the company 
And so that that ability to be omnipresent or omni-neutral is skewed in the process. And and because they don't, we don't know as HR people, we don't learn. I've had to learn it because a lot of what you're saying sounds like coaching to me. How to do that. If you're the HR person or even the manager over the manager, and you've got, you know, your you know, direct report who might be, you know, somebody and then an employee who are really stuck and they're two really good employees. Mm-hmm. How would how do you start? How do you find that 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 point of what you know, okay, let's at least be able to talk together. Yeah, great question. You actually highlighted us so many truths that actually happen too. So I've loved HR people. Mm-hmm. I'm presenting to Sherm here in Tennessee next week. Mm-hmm. But I got to say that sometimes in conflict, HR is the problem. And uh, it's a lack of knowing how to deal with conflict and advocating for the company, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe being too directive. So um, I, I've worked for companies that have, you know, robust HR programs, but no ability in how to do conflict. So you could train HR people how to listen in conflict, how to ask questions in conflict. But the truth is, a lot of companies now are hiring a neutral, a consultant, that uh, the the outside person who everyone knows is not for either person, not mm-hmm. representing the company and having great success with that. Mm-hmm. I did that for a company once and just giving the employees a voice to tell their experience. One person said to me, you know, if I'd have had this opportunity in any one of my jobs, I would have never left it. Mm-hmm. And I know that's true because mm-hmm. when do we have the opportunity to really vent about what our experience is, which is not enough, that's not right. good enough, designing the way forward, right? helping, having somebody help us have those difficult conversations right. that's presenting them in a way that's non-threatening, even if I use, if the other party uses a threatening kind of whatever, my job is to present that the underlying thing. Well, what I hear you saying is X is very important to you, you know, yeah. and uh, just digging through the stuff that that is the heart of the matter. So I think um, a lot of companies are hiring uh, that neutral. And I think it's a fantastic idea. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. HR is busy. I mean, HR does a whole lot of stuff. Maybe that's just one too many things for their plate. Right. Maybe they just need to recognize that there's a need for that. And I'm this this helps with not losing your staff. I couldn't think of that word there. You have to throw that in for me. Turnover. Attrition. <laughs> Attrition <laughs> turnover. And turnover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it helps with that. It helps with um, you know, job satisfaction. And people are spending at least a third of their life in their work. Yeah. You know, at least a third of their day in their work. And you know, you have a right to feel good about where you go to work. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very supportive and it pays off for companies. So I learned mediation techniques, not that I'm really, I'm, I'm good awesome. as a coach because I have mediation techniques. When I worked um, years and years ago um, for a company and what we did was we had consulting pairs. And so we trained inside the company people to be able to be listeners. We called them listeners. Um, And it was really around trying to make um, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging before all of that became a a big thing. We were still in the 
you know, just higher and quotas and whatnot. But the culture wanted to be sure that everybody was contributing well. And so what we did was um, we'd have matching pairs. So if you were in the conflict, you were able to select one of the pairs based on um, who you are. So if you're a white male, you could go and find a white male. If you were a female, you could find a female, whatever your status was. And they would sit as listeners and they would say things that they felt based on the conversation and what the person's truth was. So the things that don't get to be said because it's work and oftentimes it is your boss and you don't want this stuff carrying forward, et cetera. Um, somebody else could sit and say, you know what, if if I were in that situation, I would feel like sometimes it was validating what that person was and the other person, mm-hmm. but they had to talk to each other. We were listeners and people who were kind of like saying what wasn't said, but needed to be said in the room to help them find a way to move forward on it. And you're right. The most important thing is defining the way forward. One of the things I find most difficult and difficult for my heart, let me be clear about that, difficult on my heart is oftentimes people get into sessions where they're talking about performance reviews. They're talking about all kinds of emotionally charged things and they say, okay, are we good? We're good. And then a week later, they go back to the old behavior. And it leaves such a wound and a, and a level of distrust that it's often hard to come back from that. But the human nature of us is, is that we have habits and we fall back into those habits pretty quickly out of this. When you I set that up to say, when you go into a workspace where people have to see each other day in, day out, week in, week out, and you've just finished mediating a conflict with them, how do you make sure that the plan going forward actually gets implemented as, as part of the process? Well, um, great question. One of the reasons it does get implemented is because people are not being told what they need to do. They're deciding for themselves. So that buy-in I'm not doing something because HR told me this is what I need to do to fix it. I'm deciding what I can do. And then we look at that every possible way that we can and what would stand in the way from this working and what will you do if it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing about uh, agreements is they, they work until they don't. So if you find it's not working, let's go back to the table and find something else. Okay. Now, the, the level of honesty for that, so if I'm working with someone and I'm offending them a lot and we go to mediation and I say that I'm not going to use certain words and then I do, uh, I need the other person to not go, yeah, you did it again. Yep. I mean, there's a li- little grace built in there, right? Because we don't, you're right, things are habits and uh, progress is not linear. It's not straight up. It's like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, sometimes I build in like a safe word, mm-hmm. you know, instead of pointing a finger and say, you're the blame, it's like, you know, cupcake. And they know that cupcake means uh, you're doing it again. I can yeah. apologize then. It doesn't become a big issue. So trying to build in a way where it doesn't become a big issue, but if it isn't resolved, let's go back and work on it again without, again, blaming someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the things that we point our fingers at other people 
I'm pretty sure we've all done those same things yeah. at some point, right? Yep, yep, And yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we're human. We're going to mess up, you know, and we're so busy. Oh, gosh, I was doing a talk yesterday on uh, self-reflection, and it's so much easier to see what other people are doing wrong than what we're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. It's also an excuse to not look at ourselves. And we're so mm-hmm. busy focusing on someone else, we can't mm-hmm. be looking at ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think if we spent more time thinking how we're showing up and less policing, you know, what everybody else is doing will probably make more progress (laughs) because sometimes, (laughs) sometimes the other person is the problem, but a lot of times uh, it's the interaction between the two people or there's a very, uh, Helene Brenner wrote a book uh, called, Oh no, this is dance of anger. She wrote, she said the person with the problem owns the problem mm-hmm. and maybe I own the solution Yeah. instead of making you do something different. What inside of me can I do? So it's that complicated, but I use the example, like uh, my partner drives super slow and I'm a pretty mild person, but I have road rage. I mean, I'm just <laughs> and I live in Nashville, which is awful. So, you know, he's tooting along in the lane that you're not supposed to toot along in. And I'm over there going, <laughs> rocking back and forth right like trying to push the car forward or putting my right foot down like I have a gas pedal you know and then I realize okay he's happy yes I have a problem right whose problem is it mine now mm-hmm. I could say you need to drive faster so I feel better yeah but is that really the right thing to do there yeah because yeah, yeah. I'm the now one he's the uncomfortable <laughs> and probably yeah, I mean, isn't going to drive as well <laughs> yeah the person with the problem it's yes. it's often their problem to solve mm-hmm. so if I'm having a problem in work maybe sometimes because we're going to have people who rep us the wrong way we're going to have people that we're not going to be best friends with I mean that right. just is uh, maybe my problem is that I can't just accept that, that I feel like I have to win over them. I mean, there, there's some self-examination to find yep. out, you know, how much is work for me to do and how much do I have a right to ask? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a balancing act. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I learned um, as being a coach is a couple of things that you said. One is whenever you're in a situation and you get that trigger, Mm-hmm. Um, with that other person, then the coaching is really meant for you. <laughs> so that's the oh, first my, thing. That's very, beautiful. It's yeah. very reflective of whatever is happening there. And you have to constantly be self-aware of what's triggering you so that you can remain reasonably neutral in the situation, right? Yeah. The other piece of it is, is that we all say, um, we or I say, that whatever the problem is, you own 50% of it. So yeah. it's not that, somebody owns 100% of the trigger, you own 50% of the trigger, you own 50% of the solution. So the question now becomes, what are you willing to do differently, think differently, see differently, as well as what is the work you have to do to learn to let go or to adjust? I love I love talking about triggers, actually, because uh, if you and I are are talking about something and I get triggered, that trigger is 100% 100% based in the past. Yes. Yes. It has nothing to do with you except you accidentally or purposefully stepped on a landmine that is yep. something in my past. Yep. And here's another interesting thing about triggers. 
our brain's reaction to triggers, Mm -hmm. our brain's reaction to an insult is as Mm -hmm. powerful as our brain's reaction to someone holding a gun to our head. Mm -hmm. It feels life and death. Mm -hmm. And you cannot logic a trigger. Right. Someone can't hear you when you're triggered. You can't even apologize when someone's triggered. They need time. And if they have a place to unload that, that's even better. But what happens when you're triggered is you make up a story about what's going on that fits Mm -hmm. the past and you're no longer even seeing what's really going on. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that happens to all of us. So you have to slow that down. You have to wait for your body to return to a state that's not triggered. And then you have to go back and examine that again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other reason why we often can't figure out a way or see a way out of the problem, out of the conflict is because all we're doing is reopening or holding on to that trigger without really examining. So stepping back and being able to do it. And most of the time, by the time it gets to this level of, of conflict and, you know, before we talked about it, I said, there's dissent and dissent is I, I disagree with your opinion. And we talk about the opinion or the facts that are there. I don't interpret them, but it's a low level of emotional attachment to the issue itself. Then there's conflict where I view, I think my position is right and your interpretation is not right in some way that matters, but I still don't personalize it. It's still about the position or the object or the work or something like that. Rancor is when I am emotionally invested in and you are emotionally invested in being right. Whatever that means, what are this situation or it going the way you need it to go. And it's almost it's impossible for you to step back and logically or calmly hear and see the other person's opinion. We can learn dissent skills. We can learn some conflict, but when it gets to rancor, you definitely have to have a third party. Yeah. Yeah. You raise great points. So position is a stuck place. Mm -hmm. Um, We find out what are the interests under the position. Why is this important to you? But a position, you it may be absolutely 100% right mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's 100% right for me. Mm-hmm. And we find something that works for both of us. And if we can't, you know, we can't. But I just want to say that one way that I absolutely love of viewing these differences, just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I'm against you. Yes. Yes. It means I'm me. Yeah. It means based on my life experiences, based on my biology, which does contribute to how we do conflict, this is my conclusion. Mm-hmm. And can't that be okay? Mm-hmm. But why does it feel like someone else disagreeing with us is a threat to us? Can we mm-hmm. not see them as an individual and say, oh, yeah, that's that's them. That's a part of them. I always use that, too, because, you know, we make the whole person the problem. So, yeah, De- Denise you know, always blah, blah, blah. So Denise is a troublemaker. Denise is difficult to get along with. And we can't resolve people, Mm -hmm. right? But if we identify what the problem is in there, you know, Denise leaves a mess or whatever it is, we can find a solution to the problem. 
So William Urey says in Getting to Yes and just about every chance he gets, it's called separating the people from the problem. Mm -hmm. And that problem is only a part of that person. Because if you get past the fact that maybe they're loud and obnoxious, maybe they're also a parent or a caretaker or a Sunday school teacher. I mean, we're more than what you're seeing as being the whole person. So I like to use the language of part of me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is, is that um, it's on the other side. How do you, how do you listen to a jerk? Somebody you've dubbed a jerk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because once you say this person's (laughs) a jerk, you stop listening and stop seeing them as a person. You see them as an object. That's right. um, Out of this. And that's the first step to recognizing that you've gone over the line from conflict to rancor. Because now you have person, you have labeled the person as ineffective, unable, incapable, a jerk, whatever that means, um, out of it, and and so it becomes very hard. And that's usually when I start seeing, um, when I go into situations, the first thing I see is, okay, where have they labeled them as a jerk? As somebody who's wrong, whose position is, you know, just totally out of the ballpark, unreasonable, whatever that looks like in the workplace. And that's the toughest place to start with a coaching. But it's also when people bring in the third party. You know, um, there is a a confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. part, Part of us, we will see what we look for. Mm -hmm. So if we have labeled as somebody as a jerk, we will never see what they do right. Exactly. We will find everything they do wrong. And I see this show up mostly. This is interesting, Denise, with parents with their children. Mm. They define the child as this is the artsy one or this is a difficult one Mm. or whatever it is. You know, the child is all of a sudden in a box. Yeah. And we have to see more than that. You know, um, yeah, it's that's just important. But I see that a lot in parents. Of course, we do it as adults, too, because, you know, we're just a bigger version of that little person we used to be. But. Yes, yeah. But, <laughs> but also most HR systems are designed to put people in boxes uh, you know, from title, um, role. From how we evaluate them, you know, which box are they in? Are they in the effective box and the high performing box? Are they in the promotable box? You know, so most HR systems are designed to categorize people. And once we make that categorization of that person, it sticks. And it's hard, you know, it's hard on being human because the person I was at 25 is not the person I was at 35. It's one of the reasons why women have a hard time coming back into the organization and and being promotable because we see them at a time when we met them and we don't see the growth that has occurred over time. And there's lots of life challenges. They may have chosen, you know what, I need to take five years to just be in this role so that I can take care of my kids or my parents or whatever. And so then we see them as that person and then the box sticks. I don't want to take a chance on them. I don't want to whatever. And so it's, it's it's very difficult to go against when your system is designed to categorize and put people in boxes and you don't have a way in which you go back and revisit that individual. That was just beautiful. I literally was thinking I wanted to hug you. 
because <laughs> because I think what you said um, is is just a very critical foundation piece, mm-hmm. and that is uh, oftentimes in conflict, uh, people don't at work even they don't, mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk to her about this. I know what she'll say. Mm-hmm. I know what they'll do. Marriages. Oh, I know what kids. I know what you don't. Mm-hmm. When you think you know what they'll do, you're living in the past. Yes. Yeah. And you're robbing the person of an opportunity to be something different, right. to be something more, because you're right. How we react in a moment, even if it's not pretty, is based on that moment. Yeah. Maybe we're hungry. Maybe we got bad news. Maybe we didn't get enough sleep. Who knows? But it's not the person we are. It's the moment. It's just the moment that we're in. So, um uh, I, I think that, and then the thing you said about putting people in boxes, I challenge your listeners to be aware of how often in a day they talk about a they or them. Yeah. A group of people, you know, this religion always, black people need, white people are, white people need, you know, yeah, <laughs> nobody fits in that group. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's three people out of all of them. You know what I'm saying? So if we just see people for an individual and lose our tendency, I think it's become a habit now. I think it mm-hmm. shows up so much in yep. what you, your systems, you're yep. calling that systems, that have contributed to categorizing things. Our brains yeah. do categorize things. Yep. They do. It's just easier on the brain. But we have this smarter part of our brain that can say, okay, that may or may not be true right. for this person. And right. then you get curious because curiosity um, is the key to even listening to that uh, jerk. Mm-hmm. It's like, I wonder what they're really saying. And you right. ask questions, not to cross-examine, but to understand. Right. Because if you can listen that way, you're going to learn something about them and yourself. And I, I think the takeaway for the listeners are a couple of things. One is this idea of getting curious about something. You know, do it at the point when you start feeling that you're moving, that you're not able to move forward. You can feel Mm -hmm. if you notice your body, you know, when you're about to get stuck, you know, when your emotional tenor is starting to rise, that's a time to step back and be curious about it. The other piece of it is, is that every now and then go back and examine your categories that you put somebody in. Oh, this just Denise. Oh, that's just, you know, Kimberly. That's, that's just. Debbie, that's just Mark. That's just when you start saying that just or them and Mm. they, you know, who is, you know, everybody says, you know, the whole leadership. Well, who are we talking about? This is a group of people. (laughs) It could be 15 of them. Do you think they act like, you know, birds in flight or something or what here? Which one are we talking about is really making those decisions? And I think if they can do those two things is reexamine the they, the you, the just Da, 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 as well as pay attention to their own emotional tenor and how it's rising in a situation so that they can step back and get curious as to, well, why is this triggering me? Why am I, why am I so invested in it? Am I really hearing this person? They'll have two points in which they can make a turn. That's beautiful. So Brene Brown uses the story I'm telling myself, and it's probably not true. Mm-hmm. The story I'm telling myself of why you were late is you just don't care about me. And uh, I don't stand a chance against that, or you don't stand a chance against that, right? So the curiosity is recognizing the story you're telling yourself, mm-hmm. even if it's about the group, stopping and asking yourself if that story is true, 
Right. Do you know that to be a fact? And then asking other people. I use this in mediation a lot. I say, so the story I'm telling myself about what you're you know, describing is that what you're really asking is blah, blah, blah. That means I'm not assuming that um, I know what you want. Right. And you can say, no, that's not it at all. What I'm really trying to say is this. It not only helps me learn it, it helps the person who's speaking it clarify what Bingo. it is. Yep. But that's the curiosity, right? Yep. It's like it's letting go of assumptions and asking questions yep. instead. All right. So see how fast everything goes, guys. I'm so sorry we have to cut this conversation off. But you know what? My cup of coffee is empty and it's time for me to move on. I hope that if you enjoyed this, that you will share it. If you didn't enjoy this conversation, share it, because I guarantee that whatever happens, you will enter into a conversation that will help you become a better leader, a better person, and someone who can mediate conflict better. And with that, uh, don't forget, again, if you like this, make sure that you um, register, subscribe, click on whatever it is that you need to do so that you don't miss an episode of Remarkable Leadership Lessons with Denise Cooper and her friends. And so bye. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, Go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.